every Thursday, 7 to 9, with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THC. You want more open mics? Fridays, Flap. 6 to 8. Happy hour Flapback with Classic and on Muni Radio. D. Dot FM. Smith. Pew, pew, pew. Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio. I knew these people, these two people. <clears throat> they were in love with each other. The girl was very young, about 17 or 18, I guess. 
And the guy was quite a bit older. He was kind of raggedy and... Those flames get higher and higher. Oh, please, no, no.
and she was very beautiful, you know? And together they turned everything into a kind of an adventure. She liked that. Just an ordinary trip down to the grocery store was full of adventure. They were always laughing at stupid things.
Flat Black Plastic is the show on Mutiny Radio that you're listening to. Keep it listening. August 1934. Several months later, I began to feel heavy and tremors inside of my womb. My breasts are full of milk. The child does not belong in my life, for I have too many people to take care of. I have already too many children. As D.H. Lawrence said, do not bring any more children into the world. Bring hope into the world. There are too many men without hope and faith in the world. Too much work to do, too many to serve and care for. Already, I have more than I can bear. I sit in the studio in the dark, talking to my child. You should not be thrust into this black world, in which even the greatest joys are tainted with pain, in which we are slaves to material forces. He kicked and stirred. So full of energy, my child. How much better it would be if you had stayed away from Earth in obscurity and unconsciousness, in the paradise of non-being. My little one not born yet, you are the future. I would prefer to live with men in the present, not with future extensions of myself into the future. I feel your small feet kicking against my womb. It is very dark in the room we are sitting in, just as dark as it must be for you inside of me. But it must be sweeter for you to be lying in the warmth than it is for me to be seeking in this dark room the joy of not knowing, not feeling, not seeing, the joy of lying still and quiet in utter warmth and darkness. All of us forever seeking again this warmth and this darkness, this being alive without pain, this being alive without anxiety or fear or loneliness. You are impatient to live. You kick with your small feet, my little one not born yet. You ought to die in warmth and darkness. You ought to die because in the world there are no real fathers, not in heaven. On earth. The German doctor has been here. While he examines me, we talk about the persecution of the Jews in Berlin. Life is full of terror and wonder. He said, You were not built for maternity. I sit in the dark studio and talk to the child. You can see by what is happening in the world that there is no father taking care of us. We are all orphans. 
You will be a child without a father, as I was a child without a father. That is why I did all the caring. I nursed the whole world. When there was war and persecution, I wept for all the wounds inflicted. And where there were injustices, I struggled to return life, to recreate hope. The woman loved and cared too much. But inside of this woman, there is still a child. There is still the ghost of a little girl forever wailing inside, wailing the loss of her father. Will you go about, as I did, knocking on windows, watching every caress and protective love given to other children? For as soon as you will be born, as just as soon as I was born, man, the husband, lover, friend, will leave, as my father did. Man is a child, afraid of fatherhood. Man is a child, and not a father. Man is an artist who needs all the care, all the warmth for himself, as my father did. There's no end to his needs. He needs faith, indulgence, humor. He needs worship, good cooking, mended socks, elves, a hostess, a mistress, a mother, a sister, a secretary, a friend. He needs to be the only one in the world. He will hate your wailing and your slobbering and your sickness and my feeding you rather than his work, his creation. He might cast you aside for this love of his work which brings him praise and power. He might run away as my father ran away from his wife and children and you would be abandoned as I was. It would be better to die than to be abandoned for you would spend your life haunting the world for this lost father fragment of your body and soul, this lost fragment of your very self. There is no father on earth. We were deluded by this shadow of God the Father cast on the world, a shadow larger than man. This shadow you would worship and seek to touch, dreaming day and night of its warmth and of its greatness, dreaming of it covering you and lulling you, larger than a hammock as large as the sky, big enough to hold your soul and all your fears, larger than man or woman, than church or house, the shadow of a magic father who is nowhere to be found. It is the shadow of God the Father. It would be better if you died inside of me, quietly, in the warmth and in the darkness. The doctor does not hear the breathing of the child. He rushes me to the clinic. I feel resigned and yet deep down terrified of the anesthetic. Feeling of oppression, remembrance of other anesthetics, anxiety, like a birth trauma. The child is six months old. They might save it. Anxiety, fear of death, fear of yielding to eternal sleep. But I lay smiling and joking. I was wheeled to the operating room, legs tied and raised, the pose of love in a cold, white operating room, with the clatter of instruments and the smell of antiseptics and the voice of the doctor and I trembling with cold, blue with cold and anxiety. The smell of ether, the cold numbness trickling through the veins, the heaviness, 
the paralysis, but the mind still clear and struggling with the concept of death, against death, against sleep. The voices grow dimmer. I have no longer the capacity to answer. The desire to sigh, sob, to murmur. Ça va, madame? Ça va, madame? Ça va, madame? Ça va, madame? Ça va, madame?
Kevin asked me to jump Miliano from behind, but he was too big for me to follow. He wanted to help that little fucker anyway. He's forever getting me in trouble down at St. Agnes Grace where we go. It was the warmest October day that I ever saw today, so we skipped practice, Tony and Yogi and I, and decided to take a little ride down to the ferry and over to Staten Island. After polishing off a hero at Lucy's, we hopped on the back fender of the 2nd Avenue bus and rode down to the ferry basin. Once I fell off a bus like that on a sharp turn and almost got my balls crushed under the back wheel, but this ride was smooth enough and we got off and deposited our nickels in the turnstiles and were off. Just as the boat is pulling out of the dock, Tony takes out a bottle of Carbona cleaning fluid and a few rags and suggests that we do a little sniffing to get high. I was up for the idea because Carbona is one of the finest cheap highs you can get, even stronger than model airplane glue. We slipped up to the top deck of the ship and wet our rags and raise them to our faces. After four deep whiffs, we were sailing someplace else. Bells ringing through my ears and little lights flashing through my eyes. I pictured myself paddling across a river with black water. Only the canoe was going backwards instead of forwards with clouds that were faces laughing spooky funhouse laughs which wouldn't stop echoing. More sniffs and more freaky visions, the ringing bell sound just getting louder the more I breathed the stuff into my lungs. I kept it up for about 10 minutes, but by then I was getting too dizzy to handle it and I had to fling down the rag and make it to the side rail, sick as possible. I began puking wildly. My eyes felt like bowling balls and they were watering like mad. Tony and Yogi had done themselves in too and they ran over to join in the ceremony. Then we recovered enough to hear shouts from the bottom deck and wiping off our eyes, we realized we had zeroed in all over the head of some dude. More unfortunate was the fact that the guy was fantastically huge and looked horribly pissed. We wasted no time in making it for the nearest hiding spot, knowing the guy would be up after us any second. We got to the other side of the boat and did a quick Steve McQueen act over the rail and down to the lowest deck. Then we ducked into the bathroom and into the last toilet stall, locking the door and sweating our balls off. We hung on in there, reading little penciled-in obscenities until the boat docked. After about 10 minutes, we sent Yogi out to see if the coast was clear. He came back and signaled us out, and we ran our asses off the boat through the terminal onto the nearest bus. We came to a nice park somewhere in the middle of the island and played ball with the local lames all day, taking on everyone, even guys as old as 16 or so. It was almost dark when we caught our ferry back to the city again, keeping a sharp lookout for our friend and vowing we'd never sniff that stuff on any ferry again.
on the brink, the outer edge of insanity, past bleeding or tears. The ones you choose haven't cried since they fell off the slide. Usually they've been so abused that you wonder if they can take anything. In fact, you kid yourself into thinking that one of them will be able to tolerate so much that you'll actually fall in love with their pain tolerance. You're dead wrong there. That'll never happen. Like rats, things get a little vicious. Talk back to Earth again. Yeah, sure. Throw them some straw to cling to, whatever. So you can fuck them and start it all over again. The guy I knew used to drown his pets so that they were just on the other side and then he'd rescue them. The memory he gave them was a smiling, loving face pulling them out of the barrel, laying them on the grass, dust coating their muzzle. He did it in secret for a couple months off and on, but we knew that he really loved something about those dogs, whatever. It's because he knew what they could take. He was impressed. Stroke him, pet him, hold him, whisper in their ear. Then he'd drown his dog or his friend's dog again. He did it in a big 50-gallon drum that we used for trash cans. His dad would bring them home from the shipyard. Greasy pieces of lettuce floating with particles of who the hell knows what. Anyway, he showed me one day what it was that got him off. Here's his fourth grader. Bleeding scratches and bite marks on his brown arms, laughing in this unfunny way and crooning to these yelping, desperate, writhing doggies. Sooner or later, he'd get them. He was fucking inexhaustible. It'd take hours to catch a dog. You could tell what was on his mind. They'd hide, but they'd have to show up at the wash bale to eat the scraps and dry dog food sometime, right? In fact, he knew that they knew he knew, and that made it better. He'd say, you fool. He grabbed the dog and dragged him away. I'm gonna drown you, Fido. He called every dog Fido and asked me why. Pretty soon the hose would start spinning this greasy mess of water around the barrel. He'd get him in. And you don't know how long it takes for a Labrador to drown. You don't measure it in minutes.
Flat Black Classic is the show you're listening to on the Mutiny Radio.fm coming to you directly live from the Not So Sunny Mission District in San Francisco, California. This show is a epitaph for the 500 Club. God rest you. Good bar.
to the last stop on the line at 207th Street. It's like I was taking a trip to Albany or something, and I'm glad I brought along this sports magazine to break the boredom. So I'm reading this piece on how Bill Russell is going to eat up Wilt the Stilt and all is well until I reach 125th Street and onto the train stumbles this old Irish drunk, and he sits right next to me smelling like a brewery and laying this gibberish sob drama on me. It never fails. Like, I hate these old peckers, but I think they search through trains looking for me, you know? Because in a half-filled car, they'll always pass up anyone else and come right over to me, either cursing insane, bumming coin, or worst of all, the old sob routine. The trouble with me is I never had the nerve to tell them to fuck off or go find another seat myself. So what happens is that 
After about two stops or so later, I'm really involved with the dumb story the dude is laying on me, though I can't understand half of what he's saying. And I, I even start rapping back like, yeah, yeah, I, I, know, I know just what you mean. The same thing happened to a man I knew, and, and he became a drunk from it, and blah, 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 etc. You know, taking the dude really serious as if he were making sense. This particular guy today took the cake. He kept leaning all over me with his drooling mug, telling me how he killed his wife by accident by dropping a big mirror on her head as they were putting it up together or some shit like that. And every 10 seconds, sticking a bottle of Twister in my face, asking me to take a drink. So anyway, as usual, the transit cop comes along at 181st Street and kicks the guy off the train. Gives me this pathetic, sad wave goodbye as the train was pulling out like he was thinking, who's gonna listen to me now? And I felt blank and sad, like always after that happens.
cold shower helps, so does the thought of lunch. Pro football players eat well but wisely. Lunch is a refreshing meal and light. No one wants to eat too much because there's still another practice on the day's schedule. Usually lunch starts with hot soup and a cool salad of lettuce and tomatoes. But there's no spicy dressing for the salad. It's too hard to digest. Next come cold cuts like ham and roast beef, assorted cheeses, tuna fish and bread and rolls. Players can drink fruit juices, lemonade, iced tea or even hot coffee. No milk at lunch though. A pro training camp is like a football school. Players spend more time in classrooms than they do on the practice field. The rookie who fails to do his homework with a team playbook soon falls behind the rest of his teammates. The playbook contains hundreds of plays and formations. It is also a guide for training camp rules. It gives the schedule for meals, the time of meetings and other helpful information. Rookies often study their playbooks in their dormitory room after lunch. The playbook is never far from their reach. There is time after lunch for other things too, like writing letters home, or reading a book, or maybe a friendly game of cards. Players also use this period to take short naps.